Kubrick's Universe, Episode 7, Adam Rakoff. Real one. Our highly skilled team are focused on bringing you the optimal experience. experience. So many answers we may never know. Too many questions, get on with the show. No time for the chorus, only this bus. It's Kubrick's It's Kubrick's Universe, the Stanley Kubrick Podcast. What was Stanley like? If you knew Stanley, you'd understand why it's hard to talk about him. If you knew him, you'd appreciate the art of keeping your cards close to your chest, or how a game of chess can tell you more about a guy than he can about himself. Was he a genius? How would I know? But what I can say is that Kubrick, in every sense and in every definition of the word, was an artist. No question about that. He lived and breathed his art. What you don't know is that art included his family, his pets, his home, and his friends. Kind of in that order. Welcome to Full Metal Jacket Diary. Welcome back, everybody. Brand new episode of Kubrick's Universe for you. Thanks for tuning in. At the boards is our resident bon vivant and a guy who's just as cool as the other side of the pillow. I'm referring, of course, to our producer, Stephen Rigg. I am your host and humble narrator, Jason Furlong. We've got a cool show for you today. We have, as a guest, Mr. Adam Rakoff. Now, Adam is a New York-based filmmaker with numerous credits, including 27 as producer alone. He's worked on feature films, shorts, documentaries, even a video game. But he is best known among Kubrick fans for his collaborations with Matthew Modine on the Full Metal Jacket Diary iPad app, and later the Full Metal Jacket Diary audiobook. Adam met Matthew when Matthew came into the Apple Store where Adam was working as part of his Made on a Mac series. This is eventually what led to the Full Metal Jacket Diary app. Now, Wikipedia defines a killer app as any computer program that is so necessary or desirable that it proves the core value of some larger technology, such as computer hardware, a gaming console, a software platform, or an operating system. An example would be Lotus 123 for the PC back in the 1980s. Now, Kubrick fans would argue that Adam and Matthew's Full Metal Jacket Diary app is just such a one for the iPad, as a brand new, incredibly immersive way to experience a book. The app includes numerous special features, including web links relating to the project. In one of them, from 2010, Matthew writes, Last spring, I was gifted an iPad. It's an interesting device. I downloaded a couple of iBooks and different apps. It's pretty cool. I also owned a Kindle, but wasn't enthusiastic about the prospect of reading on it. My friend and I were talking about the experience of reading on electronic devices and imagined 
that if a developer could make the experience more cinematic and interactive, then digital books could take the reader on a unique journey. I realized then that my friend and I could do just that, and that the iPad could be the perfect platform to re-release my book. My friend became my design partner and producer on the Full Metal Jacket Diary app. So, Adam, you're obviously the friend here, brother. Welcome to Kubrick's Universe. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much. I'm really honored to be here. Uh, I'm a, a fan of your podcast, and I'm just, a, of course, a huge fan of all things Kubrick. So it's a, a perfect place to be. Awesome, man. Thank you for uh, uh, taking the, your time with us. Uh, can you tell us how you and Matthew originally became friends that day at the store? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it actually started prior to the event. I was, as you mentioned, I was working uh, in the marketing department at Apple at the time. And my one of my primary responsibilities were programming these events, um, these sort of talks with creative professionals uh, they could be photographers, filmmakers, actors, authors. Didn't really matter as long as there was some tie back to Apple technology at, at that time. And again, this this goes back to started around 2002 uh, through like 2009. So it's it's the it's the 2000s decade. However you say that, I don't know. It's easy, you know. It's great. You can say the 80s, the 90s, but it's hard to go the O's. You know. I, don't I know, know. I know. I've heard the aughts. So yeah, the aughts. yeah, people. The aughts. Right. Right. The aughts. So that that might be it. Um, so that was, uh, you know, at the time. This is really pre iPhone, pre iPad. All of this. It was really just the Mac and the, you know, the various programs that people were using in the kind of professional creative community such as Final Cut Pro for editing and mm -hmm. Photoshop and all the, the Adobe applications, which are still around today, of course. Um, you know, for publishing, Macs were a big thing. So uh, this book was designed, of course, and published using uh, Mac computers at the time. And so I was actually pitched the idea of doing this talk with Matthew, and I was like, oh, of course, I'm a huge Kubrick fan. Right fan of the film and it's one of my top films actually and uh i i said let's let's do it and so matthew who actually doesn't live far from the apple store in soho in new york city which is in uh, southern manhattan south of houston street mm -hmm. um he lives in the in the village just north of um uh, washington square around where nyu is and um he's kinda, Stanley used to play chess yeah, exactly. It, it, he it, he was a hop, skip, and a jump away from those uh, those chess tables. Um, he actually is bi-coastal, Matthew. He lives, uh, depending on work, he's either in L.A. or New York. And in, in fact, nowadays with the uh, the film industry being in all different cities and countries, he's constantly traveling. He's constantly in Vancouver or Atlanta or London. Of course, yeah. Just it's he's going all over the place. So. Um, anyway, so we, um, we were able to meet uh, a few times prior to the actual event to sort of talk about the, the, the presentation, the structure, and um, it, that was a great experience. We just sort of, you know, he just rode his bike down to the store. I met him at the store, and there was an office there where we kind of sort of like a green room office space where we could meet and sort of talk about, um, you know, what he wanted to show. Mm -hmm. and, 
just go over the, the event itself. And uh, that's when we started just sort of hitting it off. We just sort of seemed to have, despite our age difference, you know, I'm almost 40, but he's, you know, in his late 50s now. Um, now, but at the time, you know, he was, I think, about 45. And uh, we just sort of, you know, connected. Uh, you know, we, we put a big sign at the front of, store, uh, of the Apple store saying that, like on an easel, saying that Matthew Modine would be there to discuss um, uh, his new his new hardcover book. It was actually it actually had a metal cover, um, which was beautiful, and it was it was a limited edition book. Only twenty thousand copies were printed. Right. And, nice. uh, it was um, uh, this this sign in the storefront. Uh, that was at the time the only Apple store in, in New York City. Now there, I think. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And um, and all over New Jersey as well. Oh yeah. No, um, I went to an Apple store recently, and there was an Apple store inside the restroom of the Apple. Store. That's how <laughs> exactly. ubiquitous they are. <laughs> exactly. It's 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 gotten and in and in England too. They're they're all over the place. So we um so anyway we we what I what I'm getting at is that <laughs> that sign at the front of the store. Um, Matthew said he had more people friends, people he hasn't talked to in years, call him and email him and say, I just saw that you're going to be at the Apple store doing a talk, like, because so many people would frequent that store. It was always yeah. so much that, and a lot of them actors and, and directors and, and, and I can't, I mean, everyone you can imagine used to go into that store um, when it was the only location in New York. Um, yeah, yeah. As most of these people, I mean, I, I met people from Steven Spielberg to Sidney Pollack and those, you know, all these people just would come in there and, you know, whether they were going to the genius bar for technical support mm-hmm. uh, or just shopping, you know, buying some Christmas gifts. <laughs> yeah. So it just was remarkable because he, he said that he had more people reach out to him about that talk uh, and seeing his face on this, on this, um, the sign, this billboard uh, than he had in, a couple years for any of his movies <laughs> so it was just one of the you know at the time it was just it was an interesting thing so we had a very a huge event oh you know overflow crowd every everybody standing around uh there was a slideshow of the photographs that he took on the set um uh, and he had of course a conversation with a moderator uh, about the about the film so it just was a huge hit we kept in touch um we actually then took this little event on the road and Matthew went to the Regent street store in London and did the same event, uh, then to the North Michigan Avenue store in Chicago as well. So, mm-hmm. uh, it was just a, a, a fun event that we decided, uh, we'll send it, we'll send him wherever we can, <laughs> you know, wherever, wherever right. we have a big enough to accommodate a crowd like that. And at the time there were only us, uh, three or four. And, um, yeah. And so we kept in touch, um, for the next, you know, three or four years, uh, both living in the city, we would get together now and then, you know, for coffee or lunch or something. And uh, when I decided to leave Apple to sort of pursue my original passions of working in film, mm-hmm. uh, he reconnected and started talking about um, things we might want to collaborate on. And I, of course, was and continued to be a huge fan of his book, which had sold out. It, it, it pretty much sold out almost instantly. Yeah, um, yeah. You can't really find – you can find copies on eBay and, and Amazon, but they're mostly used copies. Um, not you'll, – you'll rarely find a, a new copy unless a, a box 
you know, surfaces. Yeah. <clears throat> and right. it does happen every now and then a box will pop up. But every copy had a serial number laser etched on the back. So they really are collectible um, books, like coffee table books, that if you have one, it really is a great um, you know, work of art that you can pass down. It's something That's what Matthew liked about it, is that it was something that people could hold on to and maybe pass on to somebody, their, their, you know, their children one day. And I said, you know, people love this book. They ask all the time where I can read it, how can I get it? And he would always tell me, well, I don't want to do a paperback edition. I don't want to do another printing. I really want those books to be um, special. Interesting. Wow. They got one. They, you know, they were owning a little piece of history, a little collectible that that they were lucky enough to be at the right place at the right time to get a copy. And that's it. So I, at the time, it was 2010, and I... The iPad was just announced, and there weren't really any other tablet computers out there at that point. And I started thinking maybe there would be a, a new way <laughs> that we could introduce this his story, his diary, his photographs to a new audience that would still retain the uh, uniqueness and collectability of those books that were out, you know, in the world. Mm. So I kind of pitched him on this idea <clears throat> of creating an app, you know, a a version of his book that would be interactive and it could include audio of him reading his diary. It could include more photographs that were not included in the hardcover edition because of course in publishing every page is money. So you have to be very, just like in film, you have to be very careful with, um, with what you include and what you decide to, to, to take out. So there were a lot of photos in the book, but many of them could not be included. Um, mm. So they had to, you know, pick the best ones. Um, so then anyway, we, we discussed it, we, we brainstormed, and he was like, I, I, yeah, I think it's a great idea because this will be a new way for people to experience it. In fact, even people who own the book will, may want to get the app to sort of experience it in yet another way with this oh, additional, yeah. additional content. So it sort of met his criteria of not wanting to publish the book again but at the same time, uh, creating something that would allow all the fans of both him and the film, but also of Kubrick, to to have access to the material uh, in a new way. Well, I mean, there's no question it's a resounding success. The app itself is absolutely, you know, essential owning for uh, any and all uh, Kubrick enthusiasts and it really is just great. I also think it's fascinating that uh, uh, Matthew had that integrity to not want it uh, released as a paperback. I, I just think that's a testament to, uh, you know, his insight about what what he uh, had created and what you guys uh, took to the next level um, with the app. So, I mean, you've, you've given us uh, some uh, differences between the original hardcover and the app, which of course had the opportunity to include a lot more photos and just obviously be far more interactive. Were there any other ways you remember uh, thinking like, oh, I really take advantage of this iPad platform in, in this way? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, the big thing for me was this high-resolution retina dis- display that they were um, 
they had just announced. I think it was with the second generation iPad. Tell us about that. Please. Yeah, we quickly realized that the um, so first we had to find the assets from the book, which wasn't easy because the publisher that published the book, uh, Rugged Land, uh, was the name of the publisher. They went out of business or were acquired by another company and were, you know, somehow they, they were dissolved. <laughs> Something happened. And, um, so the, so in the original deal Matthew had with them, them, it, it stated that if the publisher were, was to, um, you know, go out of business or, or whatever, that they would, the rights, the full rights to publishing the book in any format would go back to Matthew, would, would revert to Matthew. Um, it, it, it's his diary. It, it, there are his photographs anyway, but um, he didn't have to worry about any type of um, you know partnering with a publisher. So we were really able to say, let's just do this ourselves. Let's not worry mm. about working with a publishing company. Let's just do it independently and do it our way. Take our time and do it right. And in a one, in a way, we kept thinking we're kind of doing what Kubrick would do. You know, we're we're just sort of going to make the best thing we can make. And if it takes a year, it takes a year. If it takes two years, it takes two years. And it really and it ended up taking two years. <laughs> so yeah. we, didn't, we didn't have this pressure to sort of finish it by a deadline, which is not nice. We did want to get it out by the 25th anniversary of the film's original release, which was mm -hmm. 2012. That was sort of a goal. And we did, we thankfully made that deadline. But um, anyway, we were going through the various features. Um, the retina display was a big part of it. And when we finally tracked down the original scans from the book, we realized that they just weren't at a resolution that we felt the retina display would um, take advantage of. Mm -hmm. So I, I made the decision, and this was me, not Matthew. I said, <laughs> what if we found all your negatives? And we did new professional drum scans of those negatives so that right. they get every little bit of detail in them and he's like yeah let's let's try so yeah. we did a lot of digging through storage lockers of matthews and um, boxes and we found most of the original negatives that he took with his roloflex camera uh, which is a two and a quarter by two and a quarter inch medium format film camera this is long before digital so mm -hmm. these are these are big you know two and a quarter by two and a quarter inch negatives are huge compared to a 35 millimeter frame. So there is so much information in each of these negatives that when we started scanning them, you know, professionally, they, uh, and we started zooming in, we were seeing things. Matthew was seeing things that he didn't even know were in the frames, the details and people in the background. And it just, they also were a little dark in the book, the way that they originally were, the, the original uh, photos were scanned. And, mm -hmm. and, oh, and that is something else. The, the book photos were, ne were not scanned from the negatives. They were scanned from prints that mattered right. back in 1986. Big difference. So, so that's a huge difference as well. Yeah. So you were only going to get what was on the print. And if they were printed a little too dark, which they mm -hmm. were, that's what you were getting. And right. if you zoom in, it doesn't matter how high um, the DPI is on your scanner, right. you're not going to get anything more out of those prints than what's there. Right. So um, by scanning these negatives, we were really able to get uh, detail that um, was sort of lost in the original scans. And on the iPad, they just looked amazing. And that was, well, that was the intention 
but they also we also ran into a problem in that these scans were massive in file size. <laughs> so mm-hmm. They mm-hmm. made the app very large as well. So we had to make a, de- a decision: do we do we make the app smaller in file size by reducing the size of this of of the images that we include, meaning they won't be able to zoom in as much on the photos and and sort of explore them, or do we just say it's a you know this is it you know we want we don't care how big the app is it's as big as it needs to be to give the the uh, you know the customer the experience that we want them to have and that's ultimately what we decided to do is to say if it's big it's big you know and that's again sort of a Kubrick thing you know yeah it absolutely shouldn't well, I mean, clearly sacrifice Sorry, quality yeah you should never sacrifice quality because something might be too long or too big or whatever like you just need to make make it be what it should be and uh so that was the big thing was the the really big chore was was the was the scanning of you know over 400 negatives um and then of course the next thing we realized is we have audio we we can create a great immersive audio track that can be married to the 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 photographs but we didn't want it to just be a slideshow we didn't want it to be um we wanted them to really feel like they they belong together. So then we started to work with our designer, Jason Perry, who really helped us figure out a, a user interface that was unique, a way that the, the customer, you know, the, the user could either at their leisure read the app or listen to the story mm-hmm. by Matthew. And there would be photographs that were sort of linked to each section of each diary entry that you were either reading or late or listening to. Right. And right. This was something that this framework didn't exist. We looked all over, it just didn't exist. So we, we had to build it from scratch. And that was another wow. level of of uh, work and time that and, inno- and in- innovation, frankly. Yeah, innovation, exactly. So it 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 took it that extended the the timeline even further. So there was uh, a lot of things about it that that really we were doing. I think at the time we were the first to do them. If it's very likely that others have done similar things since, being you know five six years ago now, but uh, at the time I think we were really trying to do something that what we kept we started to dub it an appumentary. We kind of felt that it was going beyond just a tr- like an app or an ebook or anything. Love like it. That. Nature. Love it. Yeah. Started, this is something a little unique. It's sort of somewhere between, you know, a book and a documentary, and right. and we kind of uh, coined that term. I don't know if it's that's, been... a, that's a great term. No, I love it. Keep it. Copyright yeah. it. <laughs> exactly. Do it, do it now. I right. mean, uh, clearly, you guys made the right decision by going for the uh, uh, the boxes and finding those negatives and stuff and. I wonder when you were helping Matthew uh, rifle through all that stuff, how many uh, 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 adoring fan letters you might have come across from all his <laughs> his legion of female yeah, we fans did. around the world, of course. Well, but no, I mean, seriously, I think the, the fact that you guys put uh, such great care and attention to detail with the um, just the absolute, like, most pristine resolution of those images on the iPad app is what makes it, you know, what they call a killer app. And, uh, 
you know, given what you were describing about wanting people to really be able to zoom in and stuff, it was, you know, almost a perfect synergy of the iPad's introduction to the public and yours and Matthew's app hitting, you know, the market at, at, at like the perfect time because, you know, here we are and uh, uh, the Blade Runner sequel just came out and uh, I still don't have Rick Deckard's uh, Esper machines to let me <laughs> go inside photographs and kind of go right. around corners and look into the mirrors yet. Exactly. But I fingers crossed that, uh, you know, Tyrell Corporation's working on that for me. <laughs> uh, but I, I, I think it's just beyond apparent the uh, great care that was taken um, with the photos. And now to that point, a question I would like to ask um, for the many uh, photography enthusiasts, the professional and amateur photographers alike, who are, of course, also uh, Kubrick diehards, um, there's so much detail and presence, you know, compared to the 35 millimeter photography we're often used to. And um, I'm, I'm wondering if Matthew had instead shot with a 35 millimeter camera, do you think it would, those uh, photos would have still made the app? Well, we did include some 35 millimeter shots uh, because it's a funny story actually, but on uh, during, so early in the production, uh, Matthew was interested in trying to impress Stanley by taking pictures uh, with an old Roloflex camera because he knew that when he shot for Look Magazine in the 40s right. that he used right. a Roloflex. So right. he thought, oh, if I bring this, he got he borrowed one from a friend and he thought if I bring it and start taking some pictures here and there, that Stanley will kind of, you know, it would be something to kind of break the ice and kind of give them something to talk about. You know, so any, cool. any actor going into a Stanley Kubrick production, I think, wants right. to find that something that they can yes. uh, relate to and connect to. And Matthew's always been a painter and a photographer and, and has loved, you know, all types of art. So he, it was a nice, uh, it was a great idea. But when he started taking a few pictures early on, uh, Kubrick said, uh, I think the quote was, if you're going to take pictures on my set, <laughs> can't use that piece of shit. You know, it's like this old camera. <laughs> so, and he proceeded to, and the key part of that was if you're going to take pictures on my set, that was the part that I think um, resonated with Matthew because right. he never allowed pictures on his sets. He was very, unless uh, mm -hmm. it was um, sanctioned by or you know by him. So he didn't want his crew and, and actors uh, taking pictures. Now, many of them did. They snuck pictures with little cameras mm -hmm, all the time, mm -hmm. but to be sort of granted full reign to, to, for, for Kubrick to, to not be worried that taking pictures would upset him or, you know, cause any kind of tension on set was a huge deal. Um, but Kubrick said, if you're going to take pictures, you should get this camera, this Minolta camera, which is a really new 35 millimeter, you know, camera. It was a consumer camera. Yeah, but for I had one. He thought that was the camera that that was bet. He thought it was better than this beautiful old Roloflex. So, Leon Vitali, his assistant, um, went out and bought this camera 
and brought it back and they opened it up together and Matthew had both of them. He had his Roloflex and this 35 millimeter Minolta. So he actually did take a few rolls with that camera and we've inc we included some of those pictures and we scanned the negatives as well. But they even the negative scans just don't have the same uh, information in them. They, ju they just don't have the same depth. The black and white Roloflex shots are just it's so beautiful. They're so artistic. By yeah. comparison. And um, so, yeah, we got well, those. I, I was going to say, I'm sorry, yeah. that I think that I just think that I have to just slip this in that it, yeah. for me as an artistic soul uh, or one who tries to consider himself one anyway, like it really speaks volumes of uh, what I would call Matthew's artistic integrity, that he would show up on the set knowing he's getting the chance to be the lead in a Stanley Kubrick film. And he's thinking, if I bring a Roloflex, you know, perhaps he might, you know, like me or he might see that, yeah. you know, I'm, I'm operating on my own frequency. And uh, I just think that's a great little uh, aside you threw in there. I have to point that out. That's awesome. Yeah, no, it's great. And they really and they did hit it off. They really did. And Matthew would go to his estate uh, all the time and they would shoot guns together. Like people don't know, yeah. but Stanley loved guns and he had mm -hmm. um, like essentially Tommy guns. <laughs> um, yeah. So uh, that he would shoot at uh, fruit <laughs> things. Observational diary. Subject, street sweeper. Date, June 1985. Location, Kubrick Estate. Carrie and I have come over for another Indian curry dinner. Takeout, or takeaway as they call it here. All Stanley seems to eat is vegetable curry. A couple of his daughters are vegetarians, so he's been trying it out. After dinner, Stanley and I go outside for a walk. Kubrick. Do you like to shoot? Modine. Photos? Kubrick. No. Guns. Time. Minutes later. Location. Beautiful vegetable garden. Stanley has laid out a very unusual target. He's taken a watermelon from his garden and separated it from the rest of his fruits and vegetables. Stanley shows me a 12-gauge shotgun with a pistol grip and a drum that you wind up like a clock. The drum holds a dozen or so shells. Kubrick. It's called a street sweeper. When you fire, the drum turns automatically. It's a semi-automatic, short-range weapon. It looks like a Tommy gun. I hold the gun against my side, like Babyface Nelson. I fire at the hapless watermelon. I see now why Stanley set the melon aside. Not being familiar with the weapon, I could have easily destroyed his entire vegetable garden. This thing is literally a street sweeper. Not for dirt, but for anybody that's in your way. After a couple of tries, I finally connect, sending the red pulp and green flesh of watermelon all about the garden. I look at Stanley. He smiles with approval. Boys will be boys. We'll eat what we kill. Kubrick was a, a unique individual, and Matthew got to really um, get to know him on a very personal level, and uh, over the course of almost two years, really, because that's how long between all of the, um, you know, pre-production leading into uh, the first half of the film was actually the Vietnam half they filmed first. Everyone, you know, would assume you shoot boot camp first, but they actually filmed the Vietnam half. Right, of course, first. of course. And then, and I, I think it was, he's not sure why, but I, I, everyone seems to think, the actors seem to think, because then they were going to shave their heads 
so you might as well have them all with the longer hair. Yeah. It makes sense. <laughs> exactly. So, the uh, but yeah, so he... I saw Full Metal Jacket uh, twice uh, at, at opening weekend. Um, I was in high school, and uh, then I, I I went to see it uh, again the following weekend, and I, I picked up immediately the you know having already several years of being fascinated with Kubrick under my belt and, and reading about him and, and stuff. Yeah. I mean, when I got to the end of the picture, I was like, right, well, you know, it's, it's, it's a, a, a two act play as opposed to the conventional three act structure. And yes, he basically filmed it in, uh, in, in reverse. Uh, right. Right. Well, and to add to that, Matthew told me about this, that Kubrick really, believed that it was a three-act play it's just that it's it's hard for people to see it that way in yeah the film there really are three distinct acts yes. that, um you know it's just that the first 40 minutes being boot camp um feels like half of the movie when really it's only a third of the film yes uh, you know and then they get you know to um uh, what's the name to, to like the uh the base you know where um there's a whole and there's the the attack on the base that that's a whole that's a whole section right there that's right right and no, then I should, the end and yes with the sniper i i, I should right. have been clearer in that i was referring to my first impression right. as a teenager right. um but well, you're I, absolutely right yeah i just i just bring it up because there were a lot of critics at the time that criticized it for being two movies um roger ebert was one very well oh, please <laughs> um, with that guy yeah, so, and there's Sorry. a famous, if you've never seen it, but there's a really great fun, it's on YouTube, um, argument between Gene Siskel and I've Roger. I've seen, oh God, Al I've seen Cole. it. Oh, yeah. exactly. And they I, really I mean, go at each other. Some of those scenes, especially the first two, might make you think that Full Metal Jacket resembles the dark irony of Stanley Kubrick's classic 1963 anti-war film, Dr. Strangelove, but you'd only be about half right. There is irony in this movie, and satire, and comedy, but there is also way too much routine war footage. The opening scenes and basic training recycle material we've seen before, all except for a brilliant performance by Vincent D'Onofrio as a pudgy weakling who the Marines turn into a psychopath. That was him we saw looking up at the camera in that earlier scene. And there is more recycling at the end of the film, which is devoted to that firefight in the ruins of a burning city, a sequence that was shot on a giant set and looks like it and reminded me more of World War II war movies than of the special war in Vietnam. We expect an original masterpiece from Stanley Kubrick every time out, and this time I'm afraid, let's see, not a bad movie, but it's not original and it's not a masterpiece. Oh, I think it's very original and very close to being a masterpiece. I mean, first of all, I think that the stuff that we see, the training sequences, are absolutely startling. Even though this is familiar material, I think that that, that image that we got of that guy is explosive and I'll never forget it. Mm -hmm. Second, the fighting here uh, is, a, is a different kind of fighting than in Platoon. It's city fighting and it looks different. And it's a whole different war. And he's playing this film, I think, at a whole other level. Platoon was about embracing the soldier and giving the soldier credit for this crazy world that he was in. This fighting, to me, is about the mixture of, of joy in fighting and the absolute fear of being killed, mm -hmm. in the sense of when there's this guy called Animal who charges, I was so excited for him. Mm -hmm. And it's the guy I'm supposed to hate. And then when I see a sniper go on an American and Kubrick has his camera push in, I feel for the first time people getting attacked. I think visually this is the strongest oh, movie I've seen in a long time. I, first of all, I didn't think it was that visually exciting except for a few 
specific shots that were really great. But secondly, let's talk about that very sequence you're talking about. One of the guy's friends is wounded, and he's out there yeah. uh, under fire. And the other one says, I'm going to go get him. And he runs out, blasting with his machine gun to try to rescue yeah. him. Then later, it's later, later, like later, the others come up behind, and we can clearly see where the sniper is. Then when you get to that reverse shot, and he pushes in, yeah. that is a cliche, Gene. I mean, no. I, when I saw that push, I was so disappointed in Kubrick. This whole sequence is taken right out of absolutely routine grade B Republic Rod World War II war movies I of never, guys running out there to try to I save their never, buddy and somebody else shooting never, at them. I have never felt a kill in a movie quite like that. Ever oh, in I, any I, Vietnam film. Oh, not in Apocalypse Now, not no, in The Deer no, Hunter. Not like not, that. Not, in not like that. Uh, well, then in that case, you're going to love The Late Show because they have kills like that every night in black and white starring John Wayne starting they don't about have, midnight. They, uh, but they don't have movies like this film from oh, Metal I, I disagree. Okay. And I disagree particularly about the part that you like. Well, that's just one scene. I like the whole film. It's full of great scenes. Uh, when it comes to films about war and warriors, mm -hmm. Stanley Kubrick is a master. He knows what he's doing. But, you know, the real uh, buried subject here is our disagreement about Full Metal yeah. Jacket. And I would be very surprised if you liked that movie in 30 years as much as you like this one today. I don't think it's going to hold up that well. In, it's not one of his great films. In the, in the world of films as made today, Full Metal Jacket is a film to recommend. Full Metal Jacket is a very, very fine film. My opinion is the Full Metal Jacket is not Kubrick at the top of his form, which we've just seen here. Roger, it is not as good as those two films which are among the greatest films ever made mm -hmm. but for you on this show to give thumbs down to Full Metal Jacket I think is a gross mistake I think it is a film worth seeing I think seeing. I'm trying to put the movie in a context and I'm trying to tell people that it is not as good and as this is a show where you give Benji the Hunter a positive review and not now Gene film. that's totally unfair because you realize that these reviews are relative. Benji the Hunter is not one-third the film, one-tenth the film that the Kubrick film is, but you know that the same thing happens, that you review films within context. Mm -hmm. So it's not fair for you to compare those two reviews. And you know it, and you should be ashamed of yourself. No, I'm now not. Now let's take another look at the movies we reviewed this week. We disagreed, as we just said, on Kubrick's Full Metal Jacket. Gene thinks it's brilliant. I thought it had flashes of brilliance, but was an overall disappointment. Mm -hmm. Another disagreement on Mel Brooks's Spaceballs. Gene laughed more than I did. One thumb up, one thumb down. Two thumbs up, though, for Steve Martin's Roxanne, a charming comedy. And finally, a disagreement on Benji the Hunted. Gene didn't even like the title. Mm. I thought it was ideal for its target audience. Full okay. Metal Jacket. Roger, again, I don't think you would really tell people to miss it. And you even almost want people to see and have a good time at Spaceballs. Consider your thumb. Look at your thumb over the weekend. That's it for this week. Next time we'll be back for review. So, I was an 80s teen, so I grew yeah. up on uh, Siskel and Ebert at the movies because there was no internet and it was the home video and VCR revolution, right. um, which is how my generation, you know, discovered Kubrick being able to watch his movies over and over on our VHS players. But, right. uh, you know, I, I don't know. I, I watched it several times and again, most recently, a couple months ago. And I, I just am shocked how much I used to look up to uh, Ebert because now he's just I, I hate to, you know, smite the the corpse, as they say. But he does come across as a bit of a blowhard. And it's funny how often he changed his tune about he films, did, which yeah. he later became, you know, and and, and, and I just want to add to that, you know, it really shouldn't matter uh, to anyone, let alone an average Kubrick, Kubrick fan that, you know, if, if, if Full Metal Jacket is a traditional three-act structure, in fact, or it's, you know, a two-act structure, or it's two movies pieced together, as uh, <laughs> right. they put it. Like, what does it matter? That's just one more layer of right. what made Kubrick Kubrick. Right. He 
did it his way. He didn't say, yeah. oh, I have to follow this traditional storytelling, you know, uh, structure. I, I'm going to make the movie I want to make. Um, but one of the things I really, I mean, I obviously, when we started recording Matthew, um, reading his diary, I was sort of almost memorizing it at that point because I how you know I was listening in the sound booth try and you know if he would make mistakes I had to or I just didn't think he was reading it just the right way I would have to kind of mm-hmm. give, give him some direction I mean he mostly directed himself which he did a great job he really tried to read it as if he was the 26 year old version of himself yeah. um, because that's what it is that's why it's so great for people that don't understand it's it's not a retrospective it's not a memoir this was the diary he kept on the set. I know. And, and it's amazing. It's what he was feeling at the time, warts and all, it's everything in there. There's no, yep. even even the times he and Kubrick were at odds uh, or he was having really difficult things going on in his personal life, like his wife having to have a cesarean section in mm. London with his first son, with his first right. child being born. He put it all, he didn't take much out. And that's, I think, why people really love it is that it is such a all-inclusive diary of not just the filmmaking, but of what he was going through at the time, or and not just him, but the process of how he got the part, like how he heard about uh, the part from actually from Val Kilmer, who was pissed at him right. for, for getting the part, and Matthew <laughs> didn't have any clue he had the part, or because he, he never sent in an audition tape. I'm sitting in a booth eating soy pancakes with my best friend, David Allen Greer. I can't help noticing an angry guy cursing loudly in our direction. There's a wall behind us, so unless this guy's got Tourette's or is practicing a monologue, he's clearly cursing at me. I point out this foul-mouthed defender to David Allen. David Allen looks over his shoulder. That's Val Kilmer. He's cool. David Allen tells me how he helped Val Kilmer with the music on the movie Top Secret. David Allen goes over, and they talk and laugh. Then David waves me over. I get up and go to Val's booth. Val stops smiling. His face twists up like he just ate a lemon. I say something innocuous like, what's up? Val lets me know why he's upset. He's fed up with me getting parts that he could be playing. True, I'm having a good run. After streamers, I worked with Harold Becker on Vision Quest. Diane Keaton and Mel Gibson on Mrs. Sofal, and then Alan Parker on Birdie. As it turns out, my participation in those films is just the foundation for his present anger. What Val is really pissed off about is that he heard that I'm now going to star in Stanley Kubrick's new movie, Modine. If I am, I don't know anything about it. I knew Kubrick was making a new film, but you had to audition for it by sending him a videotape. Putting yourself on video is a big pain in the ass, unless you have a lot of dough and you can buy one of those big fucking VHS cameras, you have to go and kiss up to somebody who owns one. I don't want to bother with all that. I guess Val did. Modine. And I'm not going to apologize for getting jobs that you or anyone else have been up for. David Allen, charming guy that he is, makes light of the escalating unpleasantness and we all go back to our pancakes. Of course, I can't wait to get outside. It's all these types of stories that I think people love. It's sort of a little, a little window into '80s um, uh, Hollywood, as right. well as you know, as well as '80s London. <laughs> 80s, yeah, uh, you know, because they filmed a lot of scenes at Pinewood Studios, like the uh, uh, the interior scenes 
So there was uh, just a lot of great stuff that. Oh, yeah. And, and the abandoned uh, Becton Gas Works, which. That's you right. Know, and importing all those palm trees and everything. I mean, it's just it's right. just incredible. There's, there's a, a shot where all the tanks uh, and the, the, you just see helicopters going past. And I remember years ago learning that, you know, Kubrick just had the, the chopper pilots kind of like uh, go into a thunderhead out of shot and yeah. the bank turn, come back around again. So, you know, he got... Uh, dozens of helicopters out of uh, a handful. It's just, I mean, yeah, and the, that, and that type of guerrilla filmmaking yeah. never left him from oh. the kid on the streets of New York. I, I palm, love knowing that kind of stuff. Tree, yeah. yeah, and the palm trees that were shipped in from Spain were, they only had a, a dozen or so, but they just kept putting them <laughs> in potted, you know, basins and moving them around. It, so wherever the cool. camera was so they just found a way like you said it's it really is guerrilla filmmaking and something that matthew always says is that it was a very small crew um yep. it was a very tight-knit small crew that if you you know it you would think this is a huge war movie but it's it, it wasn't really it was like an independent movie in many yeah. ways and that's just uh yeah it's that's the amazing thing about it so and now you were talking uh, a few moments ago about uh, the very personal nature of uh, Matthew doing the voices for the app and uh, why mm -hmm. that was so important to him. So I got to ask, I mean, it, there seemed to be a lot of very different sounding voices in the app. Did, did Matthew do all of them? Yeah, so <laughs> it's kind of funny because when we set out to start recording, you know, in the diary, there are, he writes down, he, he did write down a lot of things that other people said, including Stanley, including Leanne Vitali, including other actors. So he would write, he would basically write in quotes, like what people were saying to him to kind of remember this. And, and this again goes back to the fact that he was playing a combat uh, war journalist for Stars and Stripes. So um, Stanley encouraged him to do this, to keep this diary on the set as well as take the photographs. And, uh, and Matthew, of course, um, at, was just sort of taking personal notes for himself until Stanley started to say, hey, Matthew, what are you writing there? Why don't you stand up and read it for everybody? So that encouraged him to... Is this something to, you'd care to share with the class, Mr. Matthew? Yeah, exactly. So that, that made him just be a better writer and start to really write a very detailed diary because he wanted it to sound intelligent. He wanted it to sound accurate. Yes. So it, it, of course, this all uh, benefited uh, the book and app later, the fact that he had such detailed notes. But the, um, yeah, the... What, when it came time to do all those voices, did he yeah. share with you, like, what was his approach or what well, was the, the, the germ of that idea? Yeah, so what, what he wanted to do, actually, was get other actors he knew to play those parts. Wow. And I said, no, Matthew, I, don't, I think that's a cool idea, but this is your diary. We're in your head. Yes, yes. You should really be hearing this the way you remember it from your point of view. So the way you remember Stanley Kubrick sounding when he said this to you, you should try to bring that to the reading. The kettle whistles. Kubrick prepares the coffee with a French press. I've never seen coffee made this way. For me, watching Kubrick making coffee is like being in a chemistry class with Albert Einstein. Kubrick. Do you think it's too... He either loses himself in the coffee or chooses not to finish the sentence, preferring perhaps for me to finish it. 
I hesitate. Kubrick. <clears throat> you know, there are no bad ideas, only better ones. Let's not say, that wouldn't work, or that's a stupid idea. If it's a stupid idea, the rule is, we don't judge. We just keep moving forward until we find the right answer, okay? Modine. Okay. I like the ending. I really feel that it's powerful. I think it shows, without saying it outright, that we seem to prepare for war our whole life. Kubrick. Really? Modine. Yeah, it's one of the things that I liked most about the script. It's a powerful image to end with. Stanley presses the coffee grounds to the bottom of the glass pitcher. I can't help feeling that he's discovered some new scientific way to make coffee. He pours two styrofoam cups full of the thick black liquid. Kubrick. Milk? Sugar? Modine. Milk. Stanley pours the milk into my coffee. Kubrick. It doesn't seem right. Modine. It's too black? Kubrick. No. The ending. It was a collaboration. You know, he really brought his, you know, acting chops to this performance, not just playing a version of himself, a younger version, but also all these other sort of characters. And, and I, again, there's words are one thing, but he really tried his best to do an impression of Kubrick the way he remembered yeah. sounding, you know, yeah. and again, he, he, he does it. He pulls it off, man. He has them, the, 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 the memory of whether he was pissed off or annoyed and how to kind of mm -hmm. add that twist to it. So I think that because it was a diary and not like a stage play, that was the right choice. If it was, if it was a different type of production, his idea of, um, or the initial idea, I should say, because we both liked the idea of having the, uh, you know, other actors come in and do the, you know, we even thought maybe we can get Lee Ermey, you know, to do, read his lines. Sure. But, Having Matthew do his impression of Lee Ermey, I think, was more effective. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Definitely. So, I mean, we it, well, that, what's also so cool about it is uh, I, I've always found Matthew's voice to have its own unique uh, cadence and timbre. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's the same with singers. I, I'm a musician as well. And there's just some people who have what... Uh, you'd call a signature voice when they sing. Uh, yeah. And it's often the same with, with, with people who have uh, 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 speaking roles, say on the radio, what have you, or podcasting, but specifically with actors. And um, it's really uh, incredible the way Matthew is doing all of those voices. And like you say, even the inflection of recalling whether or not Stanley was angry when he said this or that and, to, to know that it's still Matthew Modine's voice doing all that uh, by himself is also a testament. I mean, you either have that at birth or you don't. It's not something right. everybody gets, right? Yeah. And, yeah, then, yeah. and then to be like, I mean, a real, what I consider a real thespian, like a master of his craft on top of that. And to have that voice that's just instantly recognizable no doubt one of the reasons why my dear mom has had an undying crush on Matthew Modine for many, many years now. But uh, I digress. Um, was it Vision yeah. Quest? Was Vision Quest the one she loved? A lot oh, of she people loves like... them all. She, she, she can just, I mean, don't, you can just say Matthew Modine and she's, yeah. oh, Matthew Modine. <laughs> so handsome. He's so intelligent. He always 
sounds so great in interviews, like he always knows what he's about to say uh, uh, two minutes ahead. And she's, my mom's great. My mom's actually, yeah. she's a visual artist. She's, uh, oh. um, she actually does a lot of acrylic on canvas and uh, makes her living as an artist. And my mom has the same birthday as Christiana, who is, of oh. course, also an artist. They're both born yes. May 10th. That's great. Both, yeah, yeah. Which I always thought was a cool bit of synergy. Yes. And um, when I was at the Barry Lyndon with Live Orchestra event, which you were at and we didn't know each other then. Right. Um, uh, I, I had, uh, posted a comment on the official Stanley Kubrick Facebook page. And uh, gosh, about three months went by and I was just like living my little life and working <laughs> and such. And one day I get a Facebook notification that said Matthew Modine likes your comment on, in Stanley Kubrick. And and I had just written some uh, hopefully thoughtful words about what made the event so unique. I believe it was the post saying wishing a happy birthday to Ryan O'Neill. And I'd written something about, you know, it's a shame he couldn't have attended. He would have been treated like well, royalty, you know, yes, et cetera. Yeah. And, and, and just, you know, so then of course I had to screenshot that and send it to my mom and be like, you know, <laughs> uh, guess who uh, gave your, uh, your son's uh, comments a like? And she was of course, and oh my gosh, Matthew Modine. And anyway, she's, <laughs> yeah. she's a, a wonderful soul and a, That's a, great. a true artist. And, uh, and she has very good taste. She and my dad <laughs> saw uh, 2001 in 1968 when I was, uh, just a zygote. They were just, a, yeah. They were on a date when you were just a star child. Exactly. Yeah. If only I uh, yeah. could hope to be so. Um, yeah. They went. They went and uh, and and. Uh, I guess they were just dating. You know, they were two 20, 21 year old baby boomers. Well, hippies. They called them back then. Yeah. And right. uh, and uh, you know, they've both told me this story many times over the years. Uh, how it, it absolutely changed them both, uh, the experience of 2001 on a big screen. And uh, well, last month I got to uh, tell my folks I had the wonderful opportunity to interview uh, Dan Richter, who's now become our friend. Dan, of course, being Moonwatcher, uh, the, the, the lead uh, man ape from 2001. And, you know, the right. guy who was, the, I mean, the, 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 the brilliant mime artist who was charged uh, by Kubrick with training the entire troupe of mimes right. in the performances right, right. we see there. So anyway, I, I, I digress, but, uh, no, I, it's, it's, uh, yeah, I agree. Yeah, I, 2001 is one of my all time favorite films. And I actually got to see it on uh, a giant screen during the Tribeca film festival. I don't know, maybe awesome. Like eight years ago. And Matthew, Matthew was there and, uh, just to talk a little bit, you know, to do a participate in a Q&A um, with Buzz Aldrin, <laughs> who was there as well. And hey, he's was, from my hometown. He's from Montclair, New Jersey. They just, renamed, a, that's they just awesome. renamed one of the public schools after Buzz. No, yeah. no kidding. So it was just interesting because they there were a few other people up on stage as well, but it was just interesting to hear his perspective on it, having, you know, it came out a year before, you know, they, they landed on the moon. And mm -hmm. of course, with all the <laughs> controversy or conspiracies around Kubrick being... Yeah, no. Director, you know, it was just an interesting thing to have. You know, you have an actor that worked with Kubrick. You had uh, somebody who was on the moon, all watching this uh, this film on the big screen. Incredible! It was just a fun experience. So, uh, yeah, I got to shake Buzz's hand, and I, I didn't know what I didn't know what else to say to him. I just said, "It's an honor." You know, 
I like I can't even have a conversation with this person because I don't know what to say. Yeah, but, I mean he's seen he's seen Earth from you know yeah. a, a lunar orbit. I mean it's right. just incredible. Like we're seeing I mean, it on a big screen. He's probably thinking I've seen that for real. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I don't need to yeah. see it. I lived it. Yeah. Um, but I mean this is one of those times where. I'm glad we get to veer just slightly off topic because otherwise, you know, our listeners wouldn't get to hear about you seeing 2001 on the big screen with Matthew Modine and Buzz Aldrin. (laughs) Right, right. Like Kubrick's universe listeners does not get cooler than that. Okay, take note. How often does that happen? You know, and it was a one-off screening, you know, special event. I don't know if it was for... If it was an anniversary year, it might have been 2008, actually. It might have been, that might have been it, because that would have been the uh, 40th, is that, or? or 2008 would have been yeah, uh, the, 40th. Yeah, the 40th, yep. Yeah, so that, that probably was when it was. It was, uh, yeah, so it was over, it was about 10 years ago, nine years ago, yeah. It's, but, a, it's almost inconceivable that it's coming up on uh, 50 years. I mean, even I know. You look at the the, the, the the technology. There's a, a, a an image you might have seen. Uh, you Google search it, and it's a a production still of uh, the receptionist in the the, the pink uh, outfit, and uh, she's using the portable suitcase uh, telecommunicator device, which is <laughs> right. like a precursor. Of course, you know Keir and Gary Lockwood are on the you know very pseudo ipad devices that's right yeah bbc broadcast and the other stuff but uh uh, well it's it's incredible how much they got right i know i know and that's something we actually uh, when we were working on this developing this app we were we were talking about this like what would what would stanley think of something like this the ipad you know with all of his uh he was very as you know he loved technology and the latest technologies oh yeah everything about new things coming out, like whether they were cameras or whether they mm-hmm. were computers, he was really interested. And, um, uh, you know, during the making of this app, I did get to meet Leanne Vitali and Stanley's daughter, Vivian. And um, I was, you know, we were able to talk with them about it and get thoughts from them. And, mm-hmm. and uh, they all agreed that when the app was done, that this really, and Matthew in particular, really felt that Stanley would be proud of it that he would love it that he would think this is such a cool way to kind of make a companion um sort of story to a film that people could see the 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 making of aspect of a of a film yes and, you know yes. That, that he would love ipads that he would have one on him all the time and <laughs> yeah you know, absolutely so man I, uh, that's just so cool i mean and i I have to veer into the, because this question is, you know, there's been uh, a occasional debate, uh, you know, between uh, uh, PC uh, people and Mac users, like, and the question usually goes, you know, which do you think Stanley would have preferred? And I've seen it in uh, our group, Stanley Kubrick Appreciation Society from time to time. And, uh, you know, people can have their debates and I can't help but think, not to presume anything, but I can't help but think Stanley would have been like an all of the above guy. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I, I think he would have one of everything mm-hmm. and he would he would want to be familiar with everything. I know he did have a, uh, an IBM computer um, in like 1985, uh, yeah. you know, a modern computer of that time mm-hmm. or maybe it was 84. I'm not sure, but 
Um, yeah, I, I think that we, I think, all agree that he probably would have constantly been, whenever something new came out, he whether he wouldn't sort of say, oh, I'm a PC-only or Mac-only user. He would just right. be like, whatever's new and cutting edge, he would say, like, I want to see that. I want to try it. I want to learn it. I want to, you know, whatever. And this is how the technology industry goes anyway. You know, like, a good example are with, um, you know, iPhones and Android phones. Like, iPhone, Apple will come out with a really great new iPhone, and then it'll be cutting edge for six months, and then, you know, Samsung or Google will come out with the next version of their phone, and it will be yeah. a little better than the iPhone, you know, and, and they just kind of keep going back and forth. So um, adding new features and, and uh, that will try to one-up the other. But um, I just think right, right. what I've heard and conversations I've had, I think he would, he would, would be more of a equal opportunity uh, technophile. <laughs> and like, I love what you said about he would have had an iPad on him at all times. Uh, I think that's that's spot on uh, to assume as much. I, I yeah. can see it. You know, can you just like, can you just picture like, him with one? Yeah. yeah, under his arm and a cup of coffee in the other exactly. hand. Exactly. And somebody like Liam Vitali would have been tasked with making sure it had all the yes. all the latest storyboards and sketches and script right. notes and call sheets on it at all times, so he could just go right in there and you know be uh, you know uh, up to date on everything. Yeah, and he would have, you know, he would have had yours and Matthew's app on it. I mean, and I, <laughs> right. <laughs> no question about it, man. It's got to be so. So I want to get back to that and ask. Yeah, sorry. Yeah. A few more. No, no, no. Don't apologize, please. I'm enjoying this big time. Um, the, well, and, uh, and just a, one last thing. Please. Yeah, we, no. were, we were very fortunate that Wired Magazine, um, they, in their review, it, I think the headline was, Yeah. Something Stanley Kubrick would be would would have been proud of, and that mm -hmm. was like you know for us that was a huge um, compliment because that's really what any of us who admire Kubrick would would want, right? Is to have that um, that acknowledgement. Well, so. Precisely, I mean that is absolute validation coming from Wired, and uh, I mean I've followed their publications. It's, my my mom had the very first issue ever in print and and she had no idea they were going to become the, the the juggernaut of publishing they did <laughs> yeah. i mean i just also want to touch upon your point about because it's brilliant and you know i can speak on behalf of the awesome team that you know i work with in trying to get this podcast done right what you were saying about just hopefully trying to do something that he would approve of or that, you know, does justice to not just him as a, uh, an artist or his legacy, but his sensibilities, you know, yeah. not to be presumptuous, but him as the man. I, I can speak for the others when I say that if we didn't honestly feel that doing Kubrick's, doing Kubrick's universe was for the right reasons, if we weren't able to say, you know, even privately amongst ourselves, Gosh, you know, if, if, if Stanley's smiling down from uh, the universe right now, like the star child, and he, he, he tuned into our frequency for a few minutes, picked up on the podcast, we can only hope that he would just go like, okay, good job, boys. Exactly. You know, he would turn it, his nose up at it, or, right. or else we would not be doing this, man. Right. I agree. And just like that, too, we'd just be like, yeah, 
that's good. You know, like not like not right, a lot of emotion, right. just sort mm-hmm. of very yeah, like yeah. matter of fact. Like this, yeah. you guys, like I approve. You know, I, I'm yeah, glad. I was gonna say, I'm Stanley Kubrick, and I approve <laughs> yeah. this message. Exactly. <laughs> uh, there you have my first ever Stanley impression for yeah. the podcast. It's hard to do because a lot he he wasn't he he didn't have a lot of interviews where you could hear his voice. A lot of people have never heard him speak. It's I know like, it's incredible. It's a rare thing. He had that one uh, like 1998 recording where he accepted like a. I don't know if it was a DGA award or something. Yeah. Um, because he was filming Eyes Wide Shut that uh, that Leon Vitali actually filmed uh, for him. But yeah, it, there there are not a lot of interviews, especially later in his life, where one of the greatest is from '66. Uh, it's on YouTube. I, I gosh, I'm uh, I'm sure Stephen can tell me. I'm forgetting who the interviewer was, but it was a very casual conversation recorded on a on a portable tape deck and uh kubrick's asked about uh siblings and he said well one sister barbara mary lives in new jersey and uh the first time i heard that i was like jersey represent yeah yeah you know? <laughs> I know people forget because he lived in london so for so much of his life that he's like kid from the oh, Bronx. Was, you know? yeah, no, no, absolutely. It was, it was Jeremy Bernstein who was, uh, or yeah. Bernstein, I forget the pronunciation, right. uh, who was just, you know, a, a casual friend of his. Thanks, Stephen. Uh, my producer coming through yeah. as, <laughs> as usual, yeah. as always. So I don't really know much about him. I remember Years ago in high school, reading The Clockwork Orange first, and then we sat down in class and watched it. And it was so messed up, the movie, but it was intriguing because I kept wanting to watch it. And it kept, it just kind of kept me like on the edge of my seat. You didn't know what was going to be true to the book and what he was going to do with the movie. And I think that can sometimes, you can get a little messed up with that. It doesn't always stay true to the book. I think he really stayed true to the book, but gave it a little twist too. And then years later, I watched The Shining, and that was even more messed up. I couldn't like that. I love movies like that. And the way that he depicted each character, everything about them was just super, super intriguing to me because I like fucked up things like that. There is a button, an info button, on one of the pictures on the app. Yeah. And uh, if you click on that, there's this cool little call out which appears and it gives the complete information and text for it. And then there's an and then there's a separate icon that says tweet. Um, does that uh, allow someone to repost the, uh, that as a tweet? What does that do? Yeah, um, it just sends out it, it sends a tweet from your if you're logged into your Twitter account and it'll send out a, a tweet with a sort of a low resolution version of that picture. Um, and it will say, I think it says, I'm trying to remember the exact wording. Uh, I'm, I'm checking out the Full Metal Jacket Diary app um, or something like that. You know, maybe you, you, if you want, and it has a link, I think, to, to you know, for people to click on it and uh, check it out. Go check it out. Well, so, if there's any way to, I have to just uh, offer this, that if there's any way to uh, uh, link, you know, through the app. I mean, it's, I don't mean to uh, uh, assume anything, but uh, SCAS would be obviously more than happy to help promote the, the app, like, 
perpetually going forward. Oh, that's great. Yeah, we might um, do another update in the near future where we could probably incorporate, you know, a similar button for Facebook. Um, I don't know why we it's decided. free advertising. Yeah, at the time yeah. we just decided to to try to to do to do Twitter. I, I can't remember why we didn't do Facebook, but um, you know we've made a few periodic updates. Not just obviously every time there's a new OS iOS update, we have to sometimes fix some things that yeah, yeah. broke in or um, don't display properly, and so we 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 will put out updates periodically. But um, and we've added some photos. One of the nice things that has happened uh, is during during the production. I, in addition to Matthew's photos, because I was looking for photos that matched the diary entries, he didn't have photos of everything so that he took. So I actually ended up reaching out to a lot of other people um, that were workers on the set. Some of them were extras. Some of them drove trucks on the set. Yeah. And, I just said, hey, did you snap any shots or take any pictures that you might be willing to uh, contribute to this project? And and I got a few responses, a few people who sent me. One guy named Tony Hayes, who unfortunately just died of cancer. Um, mm. He was an extra on the set but for the entire okay. film through both uh, boot camp and Vietnam. Um, African-American, well, black actor, not African-American because he's um, not from America. But um, he right. was a great uh, friend. Yes, <laughs> he was a. He became friendly with Matthew on the set. So when we reached out to him, he was like, "Sure, you know, I, I have. I actually had a little camera on me almost all the time. Wow, taking pictures, a little, you know, thirty-five millimeter kind of point and shoot camera of the day, and uh, he actually mailed me his, uh, all his negatives. He didn't even develop them all." So I ended up scanning a lot of his negatives. I went through them, you know, on a light box and looked for them. They were, some of them were in really bad shape, so Mm -hmm. they didn't all work. Um, But, you know, that's how we were able to fill in some of the holes in the story visually was with other people's photographs. Because what we didn't have a lot of were photos of Matthew. He did a few self, you know, portraits and couple times people may have taken his camera and taken a picture of him and a few other people but we didn't have the other perspective so by getting all these other individuals to sort of contribute their um, images which again didn't look nearly as beautiful as Matthew's Roloflex photographs but they did add something unique they added a big <clears throat> component that really helped the, the, the story aspect of the kind of appumentary experience that we were trying to create so um anyway the these uh these extra photos um were incorporated but what happened is we started hearing from people after the app came out and saying oh actually i have some pictures and i would get folders in the mail with little four by six prints from people that wow and so i would scan them and and you know, in some cases, we would at the next time we were updating, just add them into the sort of bonus. There's a bonus photos section on the app where there's just additional pictures that because we had too many actually at the end that we were we couldn't include them all in the actual um, diary app experience. So we mm-hmm. were just able, we were able to include them and and add them as we went along, or as we were doing updates. And I have still even to this day 
several hundred more that have never been added. Um, a lot of them just aren't great shots. You know, we tried to curate them a little bit and pick the best ones. Like some of them are just out of focus or they're just wide shots of, you know, mm -hmm. works, which we have tons of. Right. Um, you know, it, it, it was just, it, I mean, it's great though. I love it. And, I, and I'm sure there are still yet even more people out there <laughs> that have other photographs that. I, yeah. I, I, I mean, love, it just. love seeing these other points of view, these other perspectives, whether it's of Kubrick or of Matthew um, that we haven't seen before. It's like this little window into um, the past. That oh, absolutely. I love. I yeah. mean, and it gives you, it, it, it gives you your guys app, you know, just layer upon layer when everybody started, you know, mailing you those photos and negatives that must've just been like, you know, manna from heaven to have that. This, <laughs> Yeah. It's like a blooming onion, like where you, yeah. Have, yeah. you know, you know, ever widening circles of, uh, of, of imagery. And as you say, perspective that, you know, could be added to uh, the app. And it's one of the things that makes the full metal jacket diary app truly unique. Um, did you guys ever consider adding in any video clips to, uh, like further illustrate some yeah. of Matthew's narrative? We talked about it. We talked, we actually did even start, we had this idea, or Matthew really had the idea of, of a sort of bonus section, um, which he he sort of dubbed the Full Metal Jacket Diary Rauschenmann experience, where he would interview, Matthew would interview other people who were on the set and have oh. them tell a story about one of the stories that he had, like tell it from their point of view. Oh, and of course he's a Kurosawa fan. Yeah, of course. Yeah. So cool. Oh man, yeah. you just made my day. Yeah. Awesome. So, and we did one and, and we still have it. We haven't decided how to do what we want to do with it yet, but um, he wow. interviewed Tim Colcheri or Kim, Tim Colceri. I'm not sure how uh, I've heard people pronounce it both ways, but he was the original, um, drill instructor cast by Stanley before Lee Ermey took over the role. Right. And, and then he became the gunner, right? The door, the door gunner. That's right. The door gunner. Get some, get yeah. some, get some. That's baby. right. Yeah. Yeah. He, yeah, he says, yeah. You know, how do you, uh, uh, how do you shoot women and children? You don't lead yeah. them. As, you, know. you just don't lead them so much. Yeah. It's so funny. One of my best friends, Scott Bross and I like, you know, can quote, you know, Kubrick films <laughs> chapter and verse. And we often just right. slip into conversation at, you know, random moments when we're sharing a couple pints of Guinness together and playing guitars. And <laughs> just the other night, I forget what prompted him. I said something that gave him the perfect window to just go, get some, get some. <laughs> yeah. And we were cracking up. I mean, and well, that's another layer. Again, oh, that's a whole nother thing. This film, yeah. And this film is so quoted. It, it, people don't even know they're quoting it. Like younger people. That's just like me. So horny. This has become part of the, I know, I know, I know. Uh, it just, how does that happen? It doesn't happen. I mean, how many people quote platoon, which won best picture. Right. Right. Year? It, it's a good film. I, not, I'm not knocking it. Uh, I'm just saying that full metal jacket without a doubt has, has had the longer legs, I think, when it comes to oh, those. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And, uh, I mean, nothing against Platoon. I saw that in the theater yeah. as well. And and I had an amazing experience, which was that um, a friend of mine, this was in uh, high school, and my friend Charlie and I uh, were, you know, like just kids, you know, walking uh, uh, around at night, you know, 
uh, and, and we walked to the movie theater when we just didn't have anything else to do. And Platoon had already started, right? So we sit uh, down, and uh, it, it had just been out for a week or so. And the theater's already dark. In other words, we just watch the movie, yeah. and we're like, we're like, wow, uh, you know, oh my gosh. And the film ends, the lights come up, and Charlie's dad was a Vietnam vet. Uh, and what I'll never forget is when the lights came up at the end of the picture, there were dozens of Vietnam veterans uh, in uh, not proper military dress, but, you know, in the at least the fatigue jacket. Mm. Uh, and they stood up and they saluted the screen. And that, that was really uh, just one of those movie theater memories. Right. You know, they can never right. take away from me. So, again, nothing to take away from Platoon. But it, it, there's no question that uh, as cinematic experiences go, I mean, the legs that the dialogue has in Full Metal Jacket is just whole other level stuff. I mean, um, yeah, and and the um, and the in particular, I think the the boot camp sequences have just become required viewing for anybody that goes through any type of of training, whether mm -hmm. it's a fireman or police officers or Marines. Like this is a, one of those movies that every new generation of young men and women that are coming up and, and mm -hmm. heading to that type of grueling experience. Mm -hmm. They all say, I mean, we get letters all the time. They all say that they watch Full Metal Jacket before they go off, you know, to boot camp. And it's like the last thing they watch before they uh, yep. head in. And just, and, and, and again, they also compliment it. The people that are serving and have served have, have complimented the film and Matthew for being one of the most accurate right. depictions of, of boot camp, as well as what it's like to be you know, in war. It's just chaos. It's, it, yeah, not, yeah. It, there's no story often. structure to it. It's just, it is what it is, you know? Things yeah, just in the, happen in, randomly. In the, the, in the end of the day, I mean, these guys are fighting to keep their friends alive. Right. They don't care about the, 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 the political agenda or even the war itself. Um, right. Or, or, or even the hierarchy, chain of command, and, and following orders, it just becomes... Uh, you know, and that's so evident in the way Adam Baldwin portrays Animal Mother mm. when they go in, when he tries to go in and save Doc J and Eight Ball. It's just that brotherhood that, you know, uh, it, it does not exist in civilized society. It only exists when men and or women are in, in that type of life or death environment when you can right. literally never know if this minute you're breathing is your last. My, my uncle, my, my mom's uh, brother uh, was, uh, Albert was a Marine in Vietnam and uh, I, he adores Full Metal Jacket. And he also has told me that, uh, um, that yeah, that that's what it is. That at the end, you're just, you're, you're trying to keep your buddies alive. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I just have to add that, um, just by coincidence, uh, about a decade ago, my dad was on a cross-country flight uh, and just happened to be sitting next to Arlie Ermey. Now, my dad is a, a, a passionate uh, history buff and uh, has a great mind for dates and uh, particularly history of warfare and 20th century warfare. My dad said, 
Arlie Ermey could not have been nicer, cooler. They chatted the entire 3,500 miles from New York to L.A. Wow. And, uh, That's you know, incredible. yeah. Had, yeah, had a, had a couple bourbons together, I think, or something yeah. to that effect. And yeah, right. he's just, you know, was happy to share his knowledge. And, uh, um, you know, it's of another one of those is, situations where you're if you're in a confined space, you either embrace the person you're next to or. You right, right. <laughs> go to sleep. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. When it's our Lee, I, I, I don't imagine, you know, you'd be able to go to sleep if he yeah. were next yeah. to you. I mean. If if he, if he fell asleep on you, right? You know, those eyebrows alone might have woken you up. But I mean, that, I digress. Sorry. Somehow I picture him like sleeping straight, <laughs> like perfectly upright, uh, like with perfect posture. <laughs> yeah, so. yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Not even like with his with his top button still, you know, right. buttoned and everything. Yeah, head back, shoulders straight. Observational diary. Subject: R. Lee Ermy. Date: September. 1985. Location, Becton Gasworks. Lots of activity as we get started. Everyone is excited. One guy, Lee Ermey, is so pumped to have been chosen as the technical advisor on a Kubrick movie. I imagine that hundreds of guys tried to grab that job. And I hear that Lee was once a sergeant in the United States Marine Corps. Time, days later. Things slow down a bit today as I watch the auditions for the Paris Island extras. Most of the extras are soldiers in the Territorial Army. I think this is like the British equivalent to the ROTC, or Army Reserves. Tim Colcheri, who Stanley is cast in the role of the drill instructor, yells at the extras while Lee and Leon videotape their reactions. Tim has a good voice and a look for the role, kind of like Jim West in the Wild Wild West. After about a half hour of yelling, Tim says he's finished. Probably not a good idea to blow out his voice before Stanley even starts to film him. We're about to film the Vietnam half, so boot camp should be in about eight weeks. Tim leaves, and Lee steps in and continues the audition. It's scary. Lee gets right in their faces and lets him have it. One of the soldiers gets a little nervous and smiles. I guess drill instructors aren't as intense in the territorial army. Lee goes off. Lee Ermey, screaming. Why are you smiling? You want to fuck me? It is hysterical. If Tim watches how Lee does this, he'll be great. One thing that makes Full Metal Jacket work and resonate with so many people still to this day, I think, and I've talked about this before with Matthew and others, is that it doesn't look as much like a Vietnam War film as other Vietnam War films. Yeah, yeah. It really looks like it could be any war at any you know any modern war since World War II, and Absolutely. that what I think makes it more timeless is that you can watch it today, and it kind of looks like it could be somewhere yeah. in Iraq or Afghanistan at the right, end. Right, right, right. Any kind of city that's been turned to rubble, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, it it's really about I think war as a whole, and not and about the young men and women, uh, you know, sort of breaking them. And re, you know, and rebuilding them into killing machines where they won't yeah. be well, won't be afraid, and they can just do their job, do what they're there to do. And I think that's what Kubrick was trying to well, make. Yeah, I mean, I was just going to offer that is that that is the central tenet of what I think you know. Many other uh, more astute than I have you know been exploring and discussing about Full Metal Jacket for years, which is you know Kubrick's 
uh, inquiry into the idea of, you know, what does it do to the mind and the soul of a young, innocent boy who's forced to become a man by way of uh, machination, you know, right. who's forced to be turned into a killing machine when, you know, many of those guys from my parents' generation, you know, were coming from small towns, you know, mm -hmm. many of them, you know, had not even done a semester of college. Some of them, you know, might not have lost their virginity yet and so forth. And, and, right. and to be turned into a killing machine is another layer of what will make Full Metal Jacket something that, like you said, you know, it could take place. It could be any war, especially of the 20th century and onward. Right. Um, and, and it takes that and adds that other layer to it, which is that, you know, like what so many of us love about Kubrick films is that it doesn't leave you with any answer. It's only more questions. And that's right. And 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 he does precisely that by leaving it open ended, because there will never be an answer to the question of what does it do to the mind and soul of a young man. No matter how many more wars our planet is uh, forced to endure. Um, and, you know, Stanley's film will always stand as a, as a, a, a document to the exploration of that, again, the very tenet of what, what it's all about. Yeah. And, um, you know, so there are more than a lot of people, obviously, who are, have a lot of uh, envy for Matthew having the chance to work with Stanley on Full Metal Jacket. And, uh, you know, it's, it's uh, just an absolutely incredible app. Uh, I, I could go on and on about it, but, uh, you know, look, it had to get made at some point, you know, all, all ideas are just that. And uh, you guys began with a Kickstarter campaign so I'm going to go back and just ask, like, how yeah. important how important was that? I mean, to get the uh, app uh, brought to fruition. Yeah, sure. Well, and and that goes back to what I was saying earlier, and that we didn't have a publisher involved or any other kind of outside party involved. So we we were doing this ourselves, and we decided, well, before we kind of dig into this, let's see if there's an audience for it. Let's. We kind of thought Kickstarter might be a fun way. A uh, unique way, a new way to gauge the interest level uh, and see if it if it was worth doing. And so we just sort of set our goal at a nice round number of twenty thousand dollars, and we raised a little more than that. Um, ultimately, it it probably cost four times that between the two of us, you know. And um, we got, obviously got a lot of people to donate time. The one thing great about a mm -hmm. Kubrick project, any kind of Kubrick project, is that there's a lot of people that if you say we're working on a really cool Stanley Kubrick project mm -hmm. that will will jump at the chance to help you or to either volunteer their time or give it you, you know, a, a big discount uh, as the people, yeah, right, right. <laughs> people that did our audio recording and sound mixing and engineering. They were just terrific. They just they just wanted to help us. They thought it was a cool idea. They wanted to be attached to it. So um, we got a lot of help like that. Thankfully, that's so uh, cool. And I mean, yeah. and it's I imagine it's pretty, you know, and they heard about it uh, through Kickstarter. That was the great thing. Kickstarter right. became more than just a fundraising tool. It became a way that people heard about the project, people that owned post-production companies. And they would say, hey, if you need help, if you need uh, help on this 
front, let us know. And we were able to kind of take advantage of some of those those offers. It's incredible, I mean, to think that, you know, everybody would uh, offer their services or, again, as you say, you know, deep discount um, in in good faith to, to right. be a part of something that, you know, like we in SCAS and now with our podcasts uh, are just trying to honor his legacy and 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 know that it's from the heart and, and really right. want everyone to just get that. That's the, that's, right. that's the, uh, the, the moral and ethical imperative. And, um, you know, Kickstarter had to be, you know, integral in, in, in getting you up and running. If it's not too technical a question or if you don't want to answer, it's cool. Just wondering like what proportion of, uh, your initial budget, uh, was helped out by Kickstarter. Well, as I said, we didn't really have a formal budget up front because we didn't really know what we were getting into exactly. Mm. We were sort of figuring it out as we went along. And as right, we went along, right. we were like, oh, like, let's scan the negatives. Okay. Right. That, that just became a whole other aspect of the budget that wasn't Money. You know, yeah. planned ahead. Um, or, you know, just different, different every phase of the project um, sort of just added on to the budget. I mean, now if I were doing it, I could look back at this experience and form a budget for another project much easier because I sort of knew what I was, uh, I, I have a history to go from. But uh, at the time we were just sort of going, it's just sort of saying to ourselves, whatever it costs, it costs. Let's just try to raise a little bit of startup capital and see if people want this, see if people like the idea. And thankfully they did. You know, we exceeded the goal that we set for ourselves uh, and uh, we were able to use that money mostly to pay for the scanning. It was very expensive. Um, of course. After that, we were able to, as I said, you know, use our own money and as well as get those in-kind donations and discounts to sort of help us complete the remaining re remaining aspects of uh, the project. But, uh, it, yeah, I would say probably, you know, it was all in. I probably around a hundred thousand dollars to do everything over over two years so wow yeah amazing it's because well, we chose to not it's because we chose to not take the the the, the cheap route you know we chose to yes yeah the highest quality and make sure that we were you know um you know paying people what they were worth if they um if they weren't offering us <laughs> some kind of discount we were you know, paying our programmer, paying our designer, making sure yeah. everybody, um, you know, making sure everyone felt like they were a part of the team and being the end and that they were valued. And uh, it was Absolutely. a small, small team, you know, maybe five people total working. Well, together. there again, yeah, I mean, I have to just add this. I mean, forgive me for intruding, but the, there again, you guys are doing it the way that Stanley, I mean, small crew, yep. you know, and, and make everyone feel valued. I mean, give them multiple uh, jobs, responsibilities. Um, and, you know, there's an old saying that all work is honorable work. Yeah. And, uh, you know, like for instance, in a restaurant, uh, uh, environment, like it can be argued that the most important person in the restaurant, the most important job is the, is the dishwasher, right? Cause if he doesn't keep he or she does not keep clean plates coming to chef. Chef yeah. doesn't has, have plates to serve right. the entrees. 
and the the servers and the bartenders, you know, won't get uh, gratuities. Uh, and ergo, there's a, you know, a, another correlation with the way you guys uh, so admirably and with humility just kind of like took it forward with, uh, you know, big hopes and uh, a small crew. And I just think that's awesome because it reflects very much something that uh, Stanley would, uh, dare I say, approve of. And he would have done himself. He did do himself. Right, right. Was there was there a, a one thing that you recall was like most challenging about making the app, Adam? Um, yeah, I think it came, in the end, it was the uh, getting the programming right so that everything just worked properly. I mean, that's the mm -hmm. one added like I've worked on documentaries I've produced documentaries and the early stages are the same you know you're collecting assets you know whether they're interviews or photos or or audio or whatever you're getting you're getting everything together then you're editing it all together to make a film right for a documentary but here we have this added component of things had to work, you know, things had to, if you touch something, it had to do something a certain way, you know, you had to make sure all the functionality worked on mm -hmm. different size iPad screens, different mm -hmm. resolutions, and, and this, that became, I think, the most challenging thing that, at, at towards the end of the production, right? We, we were kind of, you know, really frustrated about, um, we, I mean, the guys were great. They did everything right. It's just that we had to do a ton of beta testing mm -hmm. before we could actually put this out and make it available. And, uh, and that, yeah, that's, I think that would be the, and, and plus I'm not a programmer, so I couldn't, I, everything else I could help and I could be a part of myself from recording to scanning, I mean, I was I know enough of all the stuff. Even though I had people helping us working with, I was working with right, them right. very intimately and work and helping the, the programming side to it. I'm not a programmer, so I had to rely solely on the guy doing that. And if he was hitting roadblocks because you know he had never done something like this before, then I I wasn't able to. I just had to wait until he figured out a solution. I had to wait until he had the time to uh, you know research it or talk to other developers and find a find yeah, out the find yeah, I, I wasn't working or how to fix it well i mean look we all get the gifts that we get and uh yeah. often covet the ones we don't have but there's obviously a reason i mean I, I know how you feel about like you know the 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 gap between not being a programmer but you know hats off to you man for doing everything else i mean i can't even imagine how much time you spent scanning those negatives and with the sole purpose of getting it right just getting everything yeah and one the thing app, yeah perfect and one thing i didn't even mention is we also in our searches for those negatives found old scrapbooks that matthew's wife had kept which had old newspaper clippings and polaroids and just other kind of memorabilia from that time so we were able to scan those items too and incorporate them into the the app experience uh so that adds another level of yes, sort of, yes. Uh, um, interest to because it sort of takes you back to that period in time you know whether it's a magazine cover or whether it's a, a clipping of a review of full metal jacket or the original um premiere ticket 
you know, that Matthew saved from right. the of the film in New York City in 1987. Like all those things we were able to sort of incorporate in some way uh, into the uh, kind of, as I said, appumentary. The, in the in the credits for the app, you know, you you'd given, uh, of course, special thanks to other you and, and Matthew gave uh, thanks to other cast members, uh, Tim Colseri, uh, Kevin Major Howard, and then of course the FMJ production guys, of course Leon Vitali, whose new documentary Film Worker is uh, making the rounds of the film circuit and is supposed to be amazing. I cannot wait to see it, and of course Ian Harlan. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. And so just got to ask, uh, you know, what were their contributions uh, sure. to the, the project? Yeah. Can you share that? Yeah, of course. Yeah, Tim was, uh, he was, as I mentioned earlier, we did do this interview with him where he sort of told his side of the story of how he lost the part to Lee Ermey. Uh, we still have this this interview and we haven't done anything with it. Um, we just wow. couldn't figure out quite how to um, incorporate it in the way we wanted. So, um, but if you see film worker, he's also interviewed for that movie. And he kind of tells the story there as well. So, um, it, when you see film worker, you'll, you'll learn, uh, that that's the Rauschman effect is that if you hear, so Matthew's perspective from his diary is one point of view that he sort of was witnessing and hearing from other people. And of course, Leon Vitali has his side of the story, but then Arlie Ermey has his own story, which he tells in film worker, and Tim Colcheri has his version. So, you know, right, right. they all might have a little bit of truth to them and a little the bit Rashomon of... Rashomon effect. Right, Love exactly. It. Love it. So, so that was because he did agree to do this interview. We just haven't, and unfortunately haven't yet, found a place to, to put that interview that we felt. It, it, we just didn't want it to be this, like, one interview by itself on the app. We wanted to have more, and we just haven't gotten around to getting other cast or crew members on camera so it's still something we would like to do and we may still do it at a later date but as we got wrapped up in other projects it just kind of became a back burner project that we haven't really uh had the time to focus on yeah yeah but uh Um, that's kevin major howard sent us some photos that he took he just had a handful but they're they were good and they are inside the app um and i think if you click on the info button on every photo, it, we did a pretty good job of telling you who gets the photo credit, whether this oh, yeah. was of Matthews or if it was one of Kevin's or one of Tony Hayes's or mm-hmm. somebody else's. Um, so that was Kevin. So Leon Vitali, though, of course, Matthew and Leon really got to know each other on the set over those two years. Um, they spent a lot of time together. So Matthew and Leon have remained friends, much like when Matthew and I met through Apple, we've remained friends. Matthew tends to be a very, you know, friendly but also loyal person. So if he connects with someone, he stays in touch with them. And and right. and, and it, would you want it any other way? I mean, right. no, it's, was, it's perfect. Was Stanley That's, himself not that exact way? Yes, you know? he was. Yeah, he surrounded himself with the people he felt he could trust because he wasn't the most trusting. So if he felt precisely was loyal and would be trustworthy he wanted them around him and that was leon without a doubt yeah yeah Uh, um so when you guys put together the app uh for instance you know you you were clearly doing it uh you know because it's, it's the same thing with the podcast like you know it's a lot of work but 
would you bother doing it if it wasn't also really fun? Yeah, it was. it's fun, it's rewarding, and we're passionate about it. We never really thought to ourselves, oh, we're going to make a ton of money off of this or anything. It was really just we wanted to create something and something that we thought would be fun and cool to experience. And I think that's how anything worth making <laughs> has to. Oh, yeah. You have to want to make it. You, I mean, they, a lot of filmmakers say you got to make films that you want to see. If you try to make something someone else wants to see, you're not going to be successful. Absolutely. So, Absolutely. And that's kind of how we looked at it. We wanted to make an app that we really thought in our heads we would we would love and we had this idea and we just were trying to figure out how to do it. <laughs> yeah, but, uh, I mean so. And I think you have to sort of say to yourself, if I would like this and I am like a lot of other people, yeah, then hopefully they'll like it too and they'll appreciate it. And that's uh, I think that's the only way you can do it. It, it. You have to make something that you are passionate about making, and and do it for the art, not for the money. The, the, you know, money can be a reward potentially if it's successful, but the reward should first and foremost be the 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 journey. You know, the the process. Exactly. Exactly. And that, it is, and it was for us, definitely. You, you guys, I mean. I mean, talk about a labor of love. I mean, two yeah. years and that budget. I mean, you know, you guys showed uh, tremendous resiliency, you know, and at a time when nobody knew this was coming. And now right. it's this established, amazing thing. It's a killer app. <laughs> Thank you. Know, you. <laughs> I by, appreciate well, by, that. By Wiki's definition, I mean, you right. guys are are killing it. Uh, on top of uh, the game of killing it, you know what I mean? Thank you, thank you. I appreciate. Uh, and and yeah, and you, and you guys were doing this at a time when like, you know, iPad, like you know, what's that? Or you know, even when they started to you know roll out and they were cost prohibitive to many. Right. Um, well, you and, know, who, and who wanted one. Right, and that was one of the other challenges is that we early on set out to first and foremost make it for the iPad. And we actually were able to, through some, you know, connections that I had had, uh, sort of do an exclusive with Apple, where if we developed this exclusively for Apple, that they would give us some, you know, much-needed promotion through the iTunes store. And we, you know, we kind of made that arrangement, which is one of the reasons why we've never ported it over to Android, but also just the cost involved in doing that was um, was something that we uh didn't we didn't want to want to have to uh, undertake you know another mm -hmm. but we did decide that one thing we could do to reach the non-ipad owners out there was uh take the audio experience and create an audio book version which pretty much anybody can listen to on any device you know any yeah, computer which... phone or whatever it might be and so we took the audio that we had recorded and mixed for the app, and we sort of remastered it. We did some new sound effects. We made, we corrected some things. It, it was fantastic. It took a long time by itself, and we, uh, but we were able to kind of do some really cool panning effects and uh, just really make the listening experience very, very immersive. Observational diary: subject, playing versus being. Date. October 1985. Location, Becton Gasworks. I walk around and try to find out where everyone is. 
I go to the temporary production office and am told that Stanley is looking at dailies. I walk back toward trailer land and decide not to. I know what the conversations there will be and would prefer not to participate in a bunch of negative bullshit. I decide to explore the buildings that have been blown up and knocked down. Becton is a big, dead place. It's so creepy. I get away from the buildings and go for a walk in a field of waist-high grass. I'm trying to think about Joker, trying to imagine myself in his shoes. I see Stanley driving by in an army jeep. I think about hiding, lying down in the tall grass, but it's too late. He's turning and driving toward me. Kubrick, what are you doing? Modine, just walking around, thinking. I don't know why, but I'm suddenly emotional. I try my best to hide it from him. Kubrick, thinking about what? Modine, I don't know, I just feel, I don't know, it's stupid. Kubrick, what? Modine, I don't know, I, I just feel like I don't know what I'm doing. I feel like I don't know how to play Joker. Kubrick, I don't want you to play anything. I just want you to be yourself. There is an awkward pause. I don't know how to respond to that. How do you play yourself? Kubrick, you want to ride to the set? Modine, no, I'll walk. He drives off and I think about what he said. The important part was his choice of words, how he interpreted my situation. There's a tremendous difference between play and be. You wanted this to feel like you're in Matthew's head and hearing what he's hearing and yeah. Kind oh, of yeah. experiencing what he's experiencing with sound effects and with some original music, but nothing too over the top, just kind of these pads, these kind of musical pads that kind of just create a tone or, or a, uh, you know, a, a feeling of dread or, or forebodingness. You know? Yeah, so. yeah. Well, I mean, compared to other audiobooks, I mean, this one is, is, is clearly produced more like a radio play. And right. I've always been, since childhood, a, a, a big fan of, you know, what they used to call theater of the mind. And uh, I had old uh, uh, Orson Welles uh, records that, you know, you could like, yeah. play it on my record player, listening to his old radio plays and stuff. Yep. And, and uh, you guys uh, do an incredible job with that by adding all the music and sound effects um, and the, the, the filters on different voices. Right. It, it really does distinguish it as an audiobook apart from uh, so many others. Right. Um, did you, okay, did you make any, uh, do you recall making changes to the audio other than the, the translation from the app to the audio book? Is there anything just uh, additional you would like to share about? Uh, yeah, I mean, like I said, we did, yeah. we did sort of remaster it and we went through the entire thing and, uh, and just kind of made sure it had, uh, it, you know, there were little mistakes and things that we, after the app had come out, we had realized, you know, uh, we we noticed some little things, little things that probably most people wouldn't <laughs> hear. Yeah, but, uh, we we corrected them, and Matthew re-recorded a few of the voices that he felt um, he didn't kind of love the performance. You know, like mm. any actor, you know, trying to perfect their craft, and so we just did little tweaks here and there, and made it just a little more cinematic sounding uh, because there wasn't any visual aids to go along with it. We wanted the listening. Yeah. Experience just to be that much more immersive. Theater uh, with, of the mind. Yeah, cool. exactly. So it, it, it turned out really well. And, I, you know, we had a very limited edition CD printing, just 2,000 copies, 
just because most people, first of all, it takes four CDs to put this, you know, entire thing on yeah. CD. Yep. And then just fewer and fewer people are, are buying CDs. But we did want to not miss out because we've heard from a lot of fans and a lot of fans of the film who, especially veterans who are now in their 60s or 70s, right. No, they're not downloading audiobooks from Amazon or iTunes right, right, or Audible. Right. They still listen to CDs or in their cars. So we wanted to at least have an option for for those, uh, you know, a little bit older fans to to be able to get it as well. Uh, but most people are getting it through Audible, iTunes, Amazon, you know, one of these um, you know, digital platforms. Well, it's an absolutely brilliant decision uh, because, again, it's an all-of-the-above approach. Right. You're granting access to, you know, all that is great about the Full Metal Jacket Diary, uh, you know, as an app, as a hardcover book, you know, as you say, coffee table, uh, 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 family heirloom type of, and an audiobook. And, right. I mean, it's just, I mean... Why wouldn't you do it that way? I think you guys made absolutely a brilliant decision. Um, you guys just, you know, it's not just a home run. It's like Grand Slam, bottom of the ninth, two outs, two outs uh, you know, bases loaded down by a run. Well, thank you. It's the truth, well, and, man. And, we, and, and for people like you, we decided, well, if we're going to do the CD, let's make it a sort of fun collector's item as well. So we did produce, a, I think, 20 four-page little booklet that goes inside, which has some of the best photographs. We also added um, new forwards by Matthew. We also got Leon Vitale to write a forward and Vivian Kubrick to write a forward. So we, we tried cool. to make something that, again, if you owned the book and you owned the app, this was yet again another thing you could buy and get something new out of, that it wasn't just a a repackaging of the same content that we were offering a little something new for the ultimate collector to feel like they had, uh, you know, give them an incentive to make that purchase. Um, but yeah, the, the CDs are pretty much gone from every online site. Uh, I have, you know, in my office, maybe 50, 50 sets left, which sometimes we'll bring to events that, or screenings. Um, and do giveaways. The 30th anniversary of Full Metal Jacket, of course, was in June. Right. And so Matthew did a couple screening events at like the Alamo Draft House. Yep, yep. And uh, we brought some with us. And we did an event for uh, the Purple Heart Foundation, which is a military charity which helps um, wounded veterans. Of course, and, yeah. Uh, uh, so we gave a bunch of you know signed copies out to some of those um, those vets. So, you know, it's good to have a little that we have a little stash of them left because people, some people do like those physical things that then Matthew can sign for them. Unfortunately, you can't sign a digital download or an app. So. Right, right, right. Sometimes it's um, nice to have the media. Well, it's also, I just, you know, I want to uh, uh, kind of close out by just pointing out how really wonderful it is of Matthew to be, continuously carrying the torch and, and just for all the right reasons from the heart and mm. the way he, you know, like I've been to Alamo draft house, you know, many times for events. Uh, most recently I was there with uh, Mark Lentz a couple months ago at the, the one in Yonkers and we caught Barry Lyndon. Um, 
and uh, you know, for Matthew to 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 just be so engaged uh, at the grassroots level, so to speak, with yeah. uh, with with these events and to show up for Q and A's and just to be so forthcoming about his uh, experiences and uh, his memories of them, as I'm sure they've only enriched over time, you know, tends to happen to us as we get older. Right. And right. I, uh, I'm not, I'm not removed from that equation myself anymore. So, yeah, I mean, and then for you guys to become friends, you know, yeah. at an Apple store, yeah. you know, where you're, you're working, you know, yeah. and, yeah. and it's just, I personally will never get tired of those. You can't make this stuff up kind of yeah. stories. Yeah. I mean, Matthew was at my wedding. You know, we are just like our families, my wife and my daughter, you know, we're all friendly with his wife and his kids. Like we right just, on. Right on. He, just like with Kubrick, you know, he like with Leon Vitale and his family. Mm -hmm. Again, if you see film worker, you'll really get a sense of, of that dynamic, but he really, they were just, inseparable in many ways they spent all their time together yeah and and the families as well and i think when people have a real relationship like that it it does go beyond just the office so to speak you know it goes it becomes a real family affair i want to ask have you have have you had the chance to read uh uh stanley kubrick and me which is co-authored by uh filippo Oliveri? Uh, and Stanley's personal driver, uh, Emilio D'Alessandro. He lives in Casino. Italy yeah, I, now. I know about it. Yeah, I haven't read it yet. I, I have a copy. It's it's one of my many things I need to do, <laughs> one of my many to-read books. But um, we have yeah. a, a photo um, that's in the app of Matthew with him. On I know. It's so a great photo. A, yeah, he's uh, he talks about him in, in his diary, you know, mm -hmm. this uh, yeah, and yeah. comes to pick him up, and, and I know it's a great part of to it. state. So it's um, it's an interesting. Yeah, there's so many people that worked with him that have their story to tell, and I try to consume as much of it, you know of those things as I can. I'm just a little. I'm yeah, a little I hear you. <laughs> I, I hear you, man. We we all have so many uh, things going on, so many burners yep. at the same time. I I, I have never been. Uh, busier at any time in my life than I am these days, but yeah. I also couldn't be happier and dare I say, like, feel more uh, blessed to be so busy. And yet, yes, I mean, I, I'm, I'm constantly getting new information and, uh, uh, and, and, and books and publications and all, all things related to Kubrick. Right. Uh, and his, you know, universe, so to speak. Yeah. And, yeah. and, and it can, you know, I, I think I got a pretty good brain for multitasking and, uh, and even still, it can be difficult to keep up with so much. But that is also a testament to, you know, the fact that, you know, we lost him almost 20 years ago. Yeah. And he's it's, it's not one of the it's not the case where he was a person who became bigger in death than in life. He was gigantic in life. Oh, yeah. And, and, now, and now 20 years almost, you know, 19 years after his passing, almost we are seeing only more and more uh, discussion publications, uh, information coming to light. And I, I really like that I can't keep up with every last, you know, uh, it, a printed yeah. word or audio interview, but I, I do my damnedest. I know we all do because, right. again, labor of love, but it's fun. And yet I still feel like, yeah, you know, oh, God, if only there was, you know, 
some way to just like have more in my out basket than my in basket, you know, <laughs> exactly. for just, just for once, just for right. once, man. You know? Yeah. Well, no, there's just too much out there. Uh, I, but I do recommend um, film worker without a doubt what you will love. Um, it's uh, it's it's making the rounds, and I don't know what their distribution plan is mm. as yet. But I did, you know, I helped a little bit on the. I provided them with with some some photographs, and you know, as as I was saying earlier, I keep getting photos from people that you know worked on the set, and I have, and I continue to. So mm. I um I tried to help them out a little bit and just look for any any photo that had had Leon Vitali in it. Um, either taken by Matthew or by any of these other people and, you know, and get those to them because they were, you know, they needed as much as they could get. There's, yeah, yeah. Wasn't being photographed that often. Right. You know, so it, it, the, the photos were, were a really important part of the story. So they were, they were nice enough to give me a credit and uh, thank me. And so I, I, I was glad to do my little part um, they also include uh, some audio clips from the the, the audio book, which is great. Mm. When Matthew talks about Leon in his diary, they play those in the film, and and Matthew also has a, a you know we set up a, a new interview for him as well. No, yeah. I mean really, you, you were integral and, and get and you you've given a resounding uh, uh, yes to film worker, and uh, I know that Mark Lentz was at the premiere. And then the next night at the New York Film Festival and uh, got to meet Leon and participate in the Q&A. And he's just been raving about the film as well. So I, I yeah. have to just make one uh, uh, recommendation for you since we're both, you know, here in the New York area. Obviously, the Netflix streaming uh, is different uh, depending on uh, the region. But uh, here in the U.S., uh, if you have Netflix, you can watch the documentary that was based on uh, Filippo and Emilio's book, and it's called S is for Stanley. And oh, okay. It's, it's, it, you got to watch it, man. It's I like will. It's like a love yeah. story. It's like watching, a, it's just achingly beautiful. And I mean, yeah. that in, the, in, in, the, in the least sappy way, it's just done with a very loving uh, brush stroke, so to speak. Right. And right. Uh, it really tells the story of like, you were describing Leon's closeness with Stanley and uh, Stanley's affinity, his loyalty, um, and it really comes across uh, in the documentary. And Filippo uh, co-wrote uh, the screenplay as well. Um, so yeah, definitely yeah. check that out. It's it's, it's 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 about ninety minutes, but uh, you know, essential viewing. One of those things when uh, well, somebody had posted in SCAS that it would be dropping on Netflix soon and uh it was one of those things where i was like right you know no facebook you know for a couple hours tonight yeah you know it's gonna turning off the in. lights yeah. <laughs> yeah i mean the night the night they added it i watched right. it back to back and uh you know that's great basically yeah, I got, went I've, to bed crying <laughs> yeah i'm probably gonna happy happy tears <laughs> yeah. you, you'll you'll be glad man it's really just i mean all that and a bag of chips Nice, nice. As they say, cool. Uh, when the when the podcast uh, goes up, we're gonna link to the Full Metal Jacket Diary app. I'm wondering if, uh, if there's anything else you want to mention uh, with the app. I, I would just say that um, we are the app originally went up uh, in 2012 for 14.99. Um, we then uh, dropped it to 9.99. 
And uh, for the 30th anniversary of Full Metal Jacket this year, it's only a dollar ninety nine. So it is like get out of we here. Just, we just want everyone that has an iPad that likes that likes Kubrick or the film or Matthew or just likes a cool story. Like even like acting students or film students, yes, this is like a yes. great school for them. So we just want anyone that um, you know might be interested to have access to it. So. A dollar ninety nine, and if you're still not sure about spending those two dollars, we actually have the first chapter app, a separate app. Um, it's like a preview version that's free, so you can actually download the full first chapter app. It does everything that the full app does, but it just doesn't. It locks you out of the other chapters. And if they don't have the iPad, the audiobook is available. Uh, as I said, uh, if you have an Audible uh, subscription, I believe it's free. Yep. And um, if you don't have an Audible subscription, you I think it's nine ninety nine from Amazon and iTunes to download yep, yep. the MP three version. Uh, again, nine ninety nine for just the audio, whereas the app gives you everything. I know it's amazing. Please yeah. get it. I mean, this is another thing that was done clearly with love and respect by Adam Rakoff and Matthew Modine, and uh, it absolutely deserves to be. Uh, widespread and it, and just basically enjoyed by everyone you know uh yeah so please pick it up and well and yeah, i want to more man. Go on. one more thing well please, two more things please, little please. quick things the uh as i mentioned we do have uh, the cd sets uh in our possession a small number if someone just can't if that's the only way you can consume it if you hit me up on twitter at fmj diary that's our twitter handle uh, F-M-J-D-I-A-R-Y uh, and let us know that you really would like to order a, a CD set. Uh, I, can, I can work with you. You can make a donation to our project. And if, we sell, if, we, if you buy one, the money will go towards future updates to the app because we're con- we have to pay our programmer every time we do any little tweaking. So it would just be reinvested into the Full Metal Jacket experience. So awesome. feel free feel free to reach out about that. And uh, also, I'd like to, um, for your Facebook page and fans, I'd like to donate a, uh, a print, one of Matthew's prints. Oh, come at a sign, on. Um, from the set of Full Metal Jacket. So Dude. if you'd like to do a raffle or a giveaway, you decide the best way to... Um, okay. to get your listeners to, um, I, I don't know the, I don't know how, what kind of system you have set up to. Well, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to defer to Steven and let him, you know, <laughs> figure that out. So yeah, if you can you if just you give me the Whitney address, the park, I will man. mail it to them and they will be the owner of a limited edition fine art print of one of Matthew's, uh, photos taken on the set. conversation there with the producer Adam Rakoff. Now very old, Jason Furlong. We spoke to Adam on the 9th of October 2017. Don't forget to check out Adam and Matthew's Full Metal Jacket Diary app, which is available wherever you buy your apps. Also the Full Metal Jacket Diary audiobook, available wherever you buy audiobooks. Both come highly recommended by the team at SCARS. I'd like to thank Adam for that very generous offer of the Full Metal Jacket Limited Edition Fine Art Print signed by Matthew Mordine 
and also for allowing us to use a few audio clips from the audiobook. I'll post details on how to get your hands on that brilliant prize at SCAS on Facebook. And of course, check out the Kubrick film, Full Metal Jacket. If you haven't already seen well. Thanks to Mark Lentz, who again provided invaluable research for this episode. And also introduced us to Adam and helped us set up the interview. Thanks, Mark. What a lovely chap. Okay. Um, thanks to Alexis from Montclair for telling us who is Stanley Kubrick. And of course, thanks to our marvellous host, Jason Furlong. Bring it close. Thanks to James and Jason and myself for keeping the Stanley Kubrick Appreciation Society on Facebook running smoothly. We've got some recent shenanigans. Please rate and review us wherever you listen to podcasts and let us know what you think about the show. Next episode, we will be chatting. Next. Good job. I'm now going to leave you with a great Phil Spector producer. I'm now going to leave you. Great Phil Spector produced track from the Full Metal Jacket soundtrack, Chapel of Love by the Dixie Cups. We hope that you've enjoyed this We hope that you've enjoyed this We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Kubrick's Universe and thanks for listening. I'm Stephen Reed. chapel and we're gonna get married going to the chapel and we're gonna get
that, that was really great. Thank you, Adam. Brilliant. Oh, my pleasure. I hope it wasn't too long. I, I realize I may have rambled on. No, 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 no. I think I think, <laughs> I think if anybody uh, rambled on and he's going to get edited out, that'll be uh, Mr. Furlong. <laughs> no, it's Stephen. <laughs> what are you talking about? Ah, oh, God, I'm sure there's a bunch of people I've crossed paths with who are like, you know, okay. Five minutes of that guy is six minutes too many. Yeah, like me. I feel like <laughs> <way> I <laughs> No, screw you. You're the best. <laughs> we have taken very thorough precautions in this podcast against broadcasting anything which might only be attributed to human error. These guys aren't scientists. They're making it up as they go along. It's Kubrick's universe. We just live in it. Listening to the Stanley Kubrick Podcast. Come back soon.